not as long as what someone one line would imply. As Pastor said, this is it's Father's Day, but this is not a Father's Day message, and I, I don't feel up to father bashing, simply because, and my wife would tell you and tell me, I'm not a good father to my kids. Most kids are downstairs celebrating Father's Day um, in Sunday school, but here I am preaching. So I, I hardly qualify to give such a message uh, this morning. But since today is Father's Day, let me just share with you two jokes on dads who can't make it. This one is submitted by someone to a website. My father was completely lost in the kitchen and never ate unless someone prepared a meal for them, for him. And when mom was ill, he volunteered to go to the supermarket for her. She sent him off with a carefully numbered list of seven items. And dad returned shortly, very proud of himself, and proceeded to unpack the grocery bags. He had one bag of sugar, two dozen eggs, three hams, four boxes of detergent, five boxes of crackers, six eggplants, seven green peppers. You catch that joke? I I see puzzled looks. Okay, here's the second one. After putting their three-year-old son, Brian, in bed, his parents heard muffled sobs coming from his room one night. Rushing back in, they found that the child was crying hysterically when they saw them. He told his parents that he accidentally swallowed a penny and was sure that he would die. The father, in an attempt to sober him down, took out a penny from his pocket and pretended to pull it out from Brian's ears. The child was so thrilled and stopped crying at once. In a flash, he snatched the coin from dad's hand, swallowed it, and then cheerfully said, Dad, do it again! If these two incidents happen to me, my my 10-year-old son will say to me, fail. Let's talk about Psalm 119. There are a few things that you should know about this psalm. Pastor already mentioned one of them. It is the longest chapter in the whole Bible, 176 verses. It is a psalm that tests our patience when we read it. But it's not just the length that one finds challenging. When you read it, it can get quite boring. By the time you get to verse 45, you will kind of want to give up. Why? Because there seems to be no sequence, no plot, no direction. It just jumps from one thing to another, so it seems. And the main reason why the psalm appears to be aimless, and this is the second point I want to make about this psalm, is that it is an acrostic poem. It is an acrostic poem. Now, what's an acrostic poem, you may ask? An acrostic is a literary device where each successive letter of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on, is used to begin a new line. So here's an example of an acrostic using the word father. I'm not sure whether you can see it at the bottom. Funny like a comedian, always ready to help, takes me to the movies, happy to play with me, everyone can count on him, really loved by his family. So, F-A-T-H-E-R. So, that's an acrostic. So, as as you can see, an acrostic is a bit contrived. It's a bit artificial because you get to squeeze, you got to squeeze all those words and phrases into that kind of a pattern. 
So if you apply that idea to Psalm 119, and you realize what a challenge it is. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and all 176 verses of this psalm are divided into 22 sections of eight verses each. And you can imagine how challenging and how tough it is to write an acrostic poem with that kind of a structure. But you also realize that there is in fact a theme that ties all 176 verses together. However, random these verses may seem when you first read it. That theme, and this is the third point I want to make, is the Torah, the Word of God. And there are at least seven words in Psalm 119 that describes the Torah. You can see them here on the slides. Word, law, laws, statutes, decrees, commands, or commandments. But whichever word is used, the intention of the psalmist is very clear. The Word of God should be the centre of everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, in our families, in our neighbourhoods, in our communities, in our jobs, in our schools, our entire lives. There's nothing half-hearted about this pilgrim when you read Psalm 119. His whole being it is, devote, is devoted to the Word of God. He speaks of his eyes in verse 6. He speaks of his lips in verse 13. His mouth in verse 43. His hands in verse 48. His feet in verse 59. His voice in verse 149. And his tongue in verse 172. Being completely involved with the Word of God. And as you read the psalm, you can also feel his moods. He rejoices. He weeps. Sometimes it's on a high. Sometimes it's on a low. He may be surrounded by friends. There are times when he's surrounded by enemies. At times, he's determined about his stand for the truth and for what is right. Other times, he, kept, he freely admits that it's only by grace that he's rescued from failure. And life is like that. Such experiences can happen to any of us. And the one stable factor in our unpredictable life is the unchanging word of God, the Torah. Your word, Lord, verse 89, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Fourth point. Psalm 119 is a psalm for pilgrims. People on a journey. If you read it carefully, you will realize that there are many allusions to movement. And the language of the psalm is the language of a pilgrimage that the psalmist is on. Verse 10 declares, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Verse 19, I'm only a foreigner in the land from the New Living Translation. Verse 32, I run in the path of your commands. Verse 101, I have kept my feet from every evil path. So keep these two things in mind. The Word of God and pilgrimage. As you read Psalm 119, and I think it will begin to make better sense to you. So let, let's join our pilgrim friend on his journey. And as we do so, we will consider four different aspects by which the Word of God has shaped this pilgrim. A pilgrim whose heart is captured, a pilgrim whose mind is enlightened, a pilgrim whose will is fixed, and a pilgrim whose feet are sure. 
where does our pilgrimage start? <clears throat> For most of us, it starts when we recognize our sin and we turn to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. But as we do so, we discover something of the greatness of the love of Christ and we find our own hearts moved in our desire to do the will of God. We become pilgrims because our hearts are captured, captured by this great and wonderful God we have come to know and love. You probably heard of Stephen Hawking, a famous and brilliant Cambridge physicist who wrote a bestseller, A Brief History of Time. There's a movie about him that I happened to watch recently on one of my long flights which I took. It's called A Theory of Everything. I'm not sure any of you have watched it. Stephen Hawking, played by a British actor, Eddie Redmayne, is a Cambridge PhD student who falls in love with a fellow student by the name of Jane Wilde played by a British actress, Felicity Jones. They got married. Over time, as Hawking uncovers the mysteries of the universe, he also discovers that he develops motor neuron disease, which causes him to lose control over his muscles bit by bit until he ends up as a contorted, twisted man in a wheelchair. And he needs help for all his daily activities, eating, washing, being carried to his bed, and in the end, he even lost his ability to speak and needed a special computerized synthesizer that could convert typewritten text into electronic speech. Jane Wilde, by now his wife, stands by him all the way. He does practically everything, including bringing up four very active children, while Stephen Hawking just concentrates on his research and on his books and on his teaching. You know, Modern professional women probably won't accept the kind of a lifestyle. Physically demanding, because Jane Wah had to carry Stephen Hawking. Emotionally draining, because she had no one to confide with, and she had to deal with kids. And psychologically crippling. It's a very touching love story. For Jane Wah, it started with hot flushes and romantic highs when the two of them first met in Cambridge but she had to endure great hardship through sheer commitment to her physically useless husband with a lot of brains, but pretty much nothing else. And there are twists to the plot towards the end of the story, but let me, let me leave that aside. The pilgrim's love story with his Lord is a bit like that. Man falls in love with a woman, no mountain too tall for the lovers to climb, no valley too deep for them to cross. And when we receive Christ, we find ourselves like Jane Wilde, on fire, deeply in love with God, whom we discover more and more each day just how much He loved us. But over time, that relationship is tested by difficulties. And what will bind us to God is His love for us, but also our commitment to Him. So, Brothers and sisters, God is our lover. God is our lover. One analogy of our relationship with God in the Old Testament is that God is the jealous husband of Israel who will not share Israel with any false god or idol. You read the book of Hosea, read the book of Song of Songs, and see for yourself. And Isaiah 54, 5 tells us, For your maker 
is your husband. The Lord Almighty is His name. And likewise, in the New Testament, the book of Revelation pictures the church, the church as the bride of Christ. And one day, there will be a great wedding supper. And so out of that love relationship, the pilgrim sets out on his spiritual journey. Secondly, the pilgrim is one whose mind is enlightened. To be a pilgrim, a man must be a disciple. And to be a disciple, he must be teachable. And the psalmist is aware of his own limitations and he always cries out to the Lord for help. Eight times in this psalm, in verse 12, 26, 33, 64, 68, 124, 135, and 171, he prays, teach me your decrees. Teach me your decrees. It's not enough to have an emotional relationship with God as our lover. The pilgrim must have an enlightened mind and he must be constantly learning. But this learning is not merely accumulating knowledge. The end goal of learning and discipleship is to be more and more like Christ. He learns by doing as an apprentice, as a disciple, and by suffering. And the Word of God is His teacher to all of that. Verse 105 tells us that the Word of God is a lamp unto His feet. The image here is one of walking. When we walk, we do so step by step. You've heard Ming Wei share earlier, before he started, she started the worship service, about her experience in Malaysia and how she almost stumbled when her lamp went off. Here in Singapore, we seldom focus on our feet when we walk. In fact, we always focus on the wrong things. But the pilgrim in biblical times, walking in the wild, does not enjoy the kind of paved asphalt roads that we have. So he must always look down at his feet to see where he's going, or else he may stumble and fall. And when we walk by the Spirit, there is a lamp from God's Word for each step. If we obey it, there will be light for the next step. And sometimes we worry too much about the step after next, and the next, and the next. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan for the future, but it does mean that we should, as Jesus reminded His disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, not to be anxious for tomorrow. Instead, we should remember who holds all our tomorrows in His hand. And this is an important lesson for the pilgrim to learn. In fact, the pilgrim knows that he has no ability in himself even when he walks with the Word of God, the Lamb in his hand. And so he prays in verse 133, direct my footsteps according to your Word and let no sin rule over me. We would never be able to keep His Word however hard we try apart from grace that God gives us for the journey. Verse 29, Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me and teach me your law. Thirdly, a pilgrim is one whose will is fixed. 
heart is captured, mind is enlightened, his will is fixed. The pilgrim knows that the will of God is unchanging because God is sovereign and no opposition will ever change it. And the pilgrim has come to love that will and he's determined by God's grace that he will live by it. 106, verse 106. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. So the pilgrim's will is to obey the word of God. Where does he get his strong will from? Is he himself a man of unwavering determination and steadfastness? My family, my family and I were on holiday in New York recently. It was a long flight that I had to take. And we got a chance to watch a musical. I'm not sure whether some of you have watched this or read the book. Matilda. Great for kids, but also serious themes for adults. It's based on a story by Roald Dahl about a girl who was unwanted from birth by her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood. Matilda was sort of an accident, an accidental child. But she develops an unusual intelligence from an early age, and she loves to read. So she would just read all kinds of books, you know, uh, literature, languages, science, and all that. And her father, Mr. Wormwood, not a name like that. You can imagine what kind of person it is, right? Wormwood. is a swindler who dislikes Matilda and calls her boy. Boy. You know, and then she has to reply, I'm a girl. I'm a girl. And so Mr. Wormwood labels Matilda as useless and confines her to a room for reading her books and treats her as surplus to requirements. Her mother, Mrs. Wormwood, is only concerned with her looks and winning flamenco dance competitions. So it must be awful to have parents like that. That's not all. In school, she has to face a very sadistic headmistress and former Olympic hammer-throwing champion. A very butch-looking Miss Trunch Bull. What a name. Who believes that children are maggots and nothing but trouble. So she devises all kinds of creative punishment to break the will of the pupils. But Matilda did not crumble. Instead, she fought back ferociously against her parents and against this wicked headmistress. And despite her young age, she had, she had such inner strength and was unyielding and determined. Is that how a pilgrim determines or develops a fixed will? By being a man or woman of unyielding determination? Is that where we get our strength from? Inside us? No. The pilgrim knows that by his own, his own steadfast intentions, however sincere, however firm, can never be carried through by human effort. He knows that he can never be so determined and firm unless he is convinced, totally convinced, that for him, everything, absolutely everything, will be made to contribute to the success of his pilgrim journey. So it is his faith in the sovereignty of God that makes him a man of fixed will. And so the resolve or the will to obey God's will is rooted in his faith in God. We all know the well-loved verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. 
where Paul says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so the Apostle Paul prefaced his statement with the claim, we know. Our pilgrim in Psalm 119 makes an equally confident statement in verse 75. I know, Lord, that your laws are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And so the pilgrim knows by faith that God is working out his purpose, which includes afflictions and hardship. And that faith gives him the confidence to be of firm will. Finally, a pilgrim is one whose feet are steady. You know, a pilgrim needs to be persistent because the journey is long, the going is tough. And two words constantly recur in this psalm. They are translated as keep and observe. And these two words tell us of the pilgrim's awareness of the need to press on. And the final test for every Christian is not as Isaiah 40.31 says, to soar on wings like eagles, although we love that verse so much. Not even to run and not grow weary, but it's simply to walk and not be faint. Or to paraphrase it differently, to use the title of one of Eugene Peterson's book, The Christian Life is One Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And at times, the pilgrim confesses that he can hardly keep going and is on the verge of collapse. Verse 25, I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. Verse 28, My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And not only that, this, the pilgrim has to face many enemies. Verse 23, Rulers sit together and slander me. Verse 51, The arrogant mock me unmercifully. Verse 78, They have wronged me without cause. Verse 85, The arrogant mock me unmercifully. Verse 110, The wicked have set a snare for me. And so the psalmist, the pilgrim, is just very conscious of all his own shortcomings. And at the end of this very long psalm, after 176 verses, the traveller has not yet arrived. In fact, he makes, he makes a surprising confession in the first part of the last verse, verse 176. After all that he has gone through, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Last verse. After all he has gone through, he says, I have strayed like a lost sheep. But he does not give up. His feet are steady. And he makes no claim to strength on his own, but he prays in the second, verse, the second part of that verse, Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. So, verse 25, Preserve my life according to your word. Verse 28, Preserve me according to your word. Verse 176, second part, I have not forgotten your commandments. It is the word of God that keeps him going.
verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Sounds very dreary. But the way of the pilgrim is not all fighting and battle and weariness. The pilgrim walks happily along. Why? Because the word of God that gives him strength gives him encouragement. Verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And in spite of all the threats and jeers from his enemies and hardships along the way, the pilgrim is at peace. Verse 165. Great peace had they which love thy law, and nothing shall make them stumble. And this great peace that the psalmist talks about is the same peace that Paul describes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Again, it's a verse we all love so much. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A captured heart, a fixed will, enlightened mind, steady feet. So these are the four facets of the pilgrim that we learn from Psalm 119. Coming to an end already, ah? so Psalm long, but message not so long. Ah? You know, in some of the big cities in China, big cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and all that, millions of peasants and farmers carrying big bags like what you see here, full of their belongings, move from the countryside, they flood into these cities every day. They are the Liu, Te, Liu Tong Renko, you know, the transient population who don't belong there in those cities but have to be there for livelihood reasons. They are there to look for jobs. There's nothing else they can do on the farm because it's off-season or maybe the crop has failed. So what do they do to feed their families? They have to go to the cities and try to look for part-time jobs. And like the Samis and like these peasants, we are all transient population, pilgrims, sojourners here on earth. We don't belong here, but we must pass through this earthly life. And we were privileged and we are still privileged to have known the Lord. And our destination is somewhere else. And talk about the Old Testament heroes of faith, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Verse 14, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. If we accept what the Bible says here in these verses, that we are foreigners and strangers and pilgrims on earth, then we should live like foreigners and strangers and pilgrims. Don't accumulate too much baggage. Travel light. Don't get bogged down by the cares the anxieties 
and the things of this world, possessions, reputation, wealth, even relationships, however good and noble they are. Is it giving up too much to be a pilgrim? Yes, there are plenty of sacrifices to be made and the devil will make life tough for us. But the journey, the journey is one of joy and spiritual blessing as we walk in obedience to God. Moreover, this is an important point, we do not travel alone because all of us here are fellow pilgrims. And so, let us encourage one another on this journey together. Let us be steadfast in our walk with God and be faithful to His Word. Can I invite the musicians to the front? As we prepare to sing the closing song, Divine Exchange. We have the song on the screen. Divine Exchange. Can I invite you all to stand together? as we sing this closing song. Perhaps many of us are, are very tired and, and weary from the long journey as Christian pilgrims. There's opposition, there's discouragement, there's, there's a sense of being overwhelmed in the workplace, in our families, and sometimes at our wit's end. And if, if you are in that state this morning, then can I encourage all of us that we need to go back go back to that place where our hearts were first captured by God and be refreshed once again by His love and by His word.
sing that song, let us renew our commitment to be faithful pilgrims. Our hearts captivated by His love, our minds enlightened by His word, our wills firmly resolved to obey Him, and our feet steady and unwavering. If you want to make that your prayer, can I encourage you to come forward this morning and to make public your rededication to the Lord. Let's sing the song again. So we 